0: So let's get grounded, begin in silence, just do what you need to do to be here. To be present, to be open. <clears throat> I'm going to share with you um, a new uh, prayer that I'm using uh, in my own daily practice, and you can take this off the, um, you can take a picture of it or take it off the web when it comes this week on Tuesday, but this is it. Grace be in my head and my thinking grace be in my eyes and in my seeing grace be in my ears and in my hearing grace be in my mouth and in my speaking grace be in my heart and in my understanding and grace be in my end and in my departing and I also Pray that you get what you're looking for by being here today. Amen. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Okay, so um, this is the last Sunday that I will be teaching. Basing my teachings on the truth that can be drawn from the myth that I've been referring to as Parsifal in the search for the Holy Grail. So when we come to this story, looking for insight, guidance, strength, for how to do the spiritual journey, we are gathered at a very deep well. And we could remain here for some time. In his book, He, Understanding Masculine Psychology, Robert Johnson writes... The most important event of one's inner life is portrayed in the story of the Grail Castle. Now that's quite a statement. Or consider this. Carl Jung promised his wife Emma that he would not write about the Grail story as long as she was alive because she had been working on researching and writing about the Grail myth for 30 years. 30 years, that's a long time to be working on one story. Emma died in 1955 before fulfilling her wish. So Carl Jung asked Marie Louise von Frank to complete Emma's lifelong endeavor. And in the summary that goes out, I'll put a link to the book so that if you're interested in it, you can get it. It is not a cheap book, 35 bucks. Uh, It is not an easy read, but it's readable, and it's really well worth the effort to know this myth and all its permutations because it's had quite, quite an influence. It's very rich in psychological and spiritual insights. Jung, by the way, did write about the Grail story after Emma died, but not before. So the task I have is to see how to summarize today the most relevant insights and teachings for you and me about this story in the right here and and right now. Because we want a faith and understanding of how to live that faith that is relevant for both our lives and for the world in which we live. And uh, by the way, the word relevant doesn't necessarily mean what you want or what appeals to you. The word relevant basically means what you need, what we need. Now, when I first started teaching Ordinary Life, I called it Ordinary Life because I wanted to communicate that it's in the givenness of life as it is that we are to live. There's no special place to get to. There's no special person to become. At that time in my teaching, I would have said and probably did that the goal of our work was not to get somewhere but to become someone. Now, um, 20 years later, I would say that the goal is not to become someone, but to become aware of the someone we already are. So how do we make the journey described in the Grail Mystery that makes the ongoing living of our ordinary life fulfilling? I believe that we will not care for, with love and compassion, what we don't love. This applies to ourselves. Enlightened self interest is a really good thing to have. It's a dictum that you're not going to love anybody else more than you love yourself. You're not going to let anybody else love you more than you love yourself. And it is this love that the Grail myth is ultimately about because we're not going to love. Anything, any person that we don't consider sacred. So the Grail myth teaches that each of us has a relationship with the great mystery. Now, you can call that mystery God, if that's a word you want to use, or grace, which is the word I'm using. And we can either honor our relationship to the sacred, or we can spurn it. The word spurn is an interesting word in the Sanskrit which is very akin to what Hebrew became. The language is a picture language so that the words draw pictures of things. And the word spurn is a word that pictures somebody kicking something out of the way in the road that they don't want to bother. You can spurn grace if you want to. I think that that one of the great Mistakes in Christian theological teaching. There have been many. One is that we got the only way. That's a big one. But one of the great mistakes in theological teaching is that it is taught, for the most part, that um, incarnation meant that God became a person and more specifically, God became Jesus and that our job is to somehow worship Jesus and that gets us out of the fires of hell. That's not what incarnation means. Incarnation is a Jewish concept that goes all the way back to the uh, stories of Moses. And the, the Jewish understanding of incarnation is that God became human. And our spiritual task is to embrace that incarnation. That is to become who we already are. So that Jesus shows us How to be, not who to believe in. So you with me? Are you here? (laughs) Are you in there? (laughs) So when you answer that question, who is it that answers? You're not what you see. You're not what you think about what you see you're not what you feel what you think about what you see so who answers that question who's in there that you which Freud referred to as the observing ego and Jung called the self is what the grail myth is all about it's what all great spiritual teachings are about Now, I'm gonna assume that you've been here for the last couple of Sundays so that you know the story, so that I can refer to the grail myth and not repeat it. It's got several versions. Uh, Most take place in a medieval kingdom where the king has been mortally wounded, he's near death, and consequently the kingdom he rules is a wasteland, crops are dying, monasteries are empty, the people have no hope. And in many versions of the story, the king is referred to as the fisher king. And this is because all the king can do until his wound heals, which it refuses to do, is fish. Now, fishing and boats, as well as water, are very powerful symbols. They're symbols in the unconscious, and they're symbols in the outer world. The fish, two simple line drawings, was the first symbol of the Christian church, of the Christian movement. And if you walk into that sanctuary across the plaza and look up, you're looking at the bottom of a boat. It's an ark. Fish and bread are central to the teachings of Jesus and the Jesus myth. When Jesus called people to follow him, he said, I will make you fishers of people. Translated men, but we'll get to that. So what we're doing in here is fishing. And it's to say we seek or we risk dropping down into our own unconscious to see what comes up. There's something about being at the ocean, the water's edge, that just speaks to us. The ocean is the natural image of the symbol of the vast unconsciousness. So the Fisher King is the archetypical symbol that's connected to places of suffering, places of longing. Now, I know none of you in here have anything to suffer, but you might know someone who does, or someday you might suffer. You know what it's like to sit by the edge and long, hope for something to deal with our Fears, what makes us feel insecure. I'm going to say it. To have a daily spiritual practice (laughs) is to go fishing. So is working with your dreams. Now, I think right now our country is in the position of the fisher king, our country is wounded. We're disconnected from each other, disconnected from a path that leads to health. If we keep going in the direction we're going, it doesn't look promising. And often people don't know their own wounding. We're not aware very often that the wounds we have are self-inflicted. We sense that something is not right. But the way that this not-rightness takes shape is either in lethargy or in intense anger, anarchy. The kingdom's inhabitants are not happy with their lives. Answers that previously worked now no longer do. Now, here's something that I think is important to note. The part of us, whether individually or collectively, that's fragmented, split, and wounded, knows that at some level we are separated from our original state. We just can't connect with it. And we want to, but we do so frequently in very wise and unuseful ways. So Parsifal in the story is that part of us that yearns, like these people, to connect, but hasn't figured out how to do it. The grail, which has the capacity for renewal and forgiveness and transformation, is within us also, and that's good news. All right? But wait, there's more good news. If you act now, and operators are standing by, <laughs> you can discover that this fishing soul work is no picnic. It is true what they say, that it's a hard way. Now, if confession is good for the soul, then my soul is about to get some goodness because I have a confession to make. I have bragged in here about the fact that I don't watch commercial television. And with a few exceptions that I would rather not talk about. (laughs) That's true. The one exception that I'm willing to talk about is football. (laughs) If I happen on a football game on television, and they seem to be everywhere right now, I will stop to see what the score is. And if it's real lopsided, like one of the games I turned on last night when we got home, I just pass it. You know, it's not worth watching. But if it's close, I'll watch the game. I want to see what happens. Doesn't matter who's playing. Doesn't matter if it's college or professional or high school. If it's a close game, I want to watch. And I am always for the underdog. Whoever is behind, I want to see them score and try to get ahead. And I watch these players tough it out on what is really hard, brutal work. And uh, they, these guys really take a body, really take a beating. You've seen them, right? I mean, they get some blows now with technology on TV that we can see the close-ups and the replays. These guys take some real serious, significant body blows. They slug it out. Now. Um, Their sweaty bodies reflect the kind of brutal work they're doing. They're putting into it for the sake of the game. This is a metaphor for spiritual practice. You might not like it, but it is one. Another metaphor that I get out of this, and and I suppose any competitive sport does the same, is what happens when the game is over. The losing team, it's dejected, dejected, dispirited, whipped. They can barely make it to the locker room. You've seen that. The winning team, however, is so energized, it looks like they could play another game. They both teams played the same game. But one leaves the field feeling despondent and dejected and one leaves feeling energized and wanting more. That's another metaphor for for spiritual work. So making the, the grail quest, which we actually never finish, is hard work. And to make it more difficult, it is a journey of mystery. The journey into wholeness involves finding the courage to go fishing in ourselves, taking personal responsibility for whatever comes up, And it means looking at who we are and our history without flinching and owning up to whatever wreckage we find in there, as well as the gold that is there. I think one of the beautiful things about the teaching of Jesus, though it offended many people, is that uh, he made it very clear that in his circle and the community he wanted to create, everybody belonged. Didn't matter. Whores, beggars, lepers, thieves, tax collectors, saints, leaders of the church. They all belong. That's one of the great, beautiful things. That's true of the inner world, too. Everything belongs. So the Grail story says that when we make right the inner world, then things begin to get right in the outer world. Things don't get right in the outer world as long as there is muddle in the inner world. That's one of the major stories of the Grail story. So the Grail story serves to raise two questions. And we use the way we answer these questions to guide and to shape our lives. These are the questions that are at the heart of all wise, useful religious teaching. They are ultimately, who are we, and what are we to do? And I say they're ultimately this because they don't start as this. They start as, who am I and what am I to do? But eventually, they get to we. So, though we are born in the collective, like Parsifal with his mother... Eventually, we have to leave, like Parsifal. Hopefully, we are nurtured by the collective in wise and useful ways. Pardon me. And then, like Parsifal, we have to leave, we have to find our own way, and then hopefully return to the collective. So the, the, the Grail myth is one that's powerful, that shows up in the collective in numerous ways across history. And some anthropologists have argued that you can find this in all societies in recorded history. <clears throat> Certainly Native American societies, indigenous societies elsewhere. So we'll get to some of the archetypes in, that are in this in, in a minute. So we start by asking, who am I, what am I to do? Then that's to move to who are we and who are we to be. And because this is a story about male archetypical energy, I'm going to show you the four major male archetypes that are in the story. Now, again, you find this in every story, in every great myth. It's in the Christian myth, except Jesus plays all the parts in the Christian myth. But you'll see that in a minute. So there are male archetypes, and some of them are immature. The male archetypes are king, warrior, magician, and lover. Now, we could spend uh, 30 years on this, as Emma Young did, <laughs> but we're not going to do that, so this is it. No more, no more grail after today. Um, so in the, in the Parsifal myth, Parsifal has the task of growing up and thereby contributing to the growth and health of the community, of the kingdom. So he has to leave home, find his own way, and return. So the king energy who never grows up becomes either a high-chair tyrant or a weakling subservient. The warrior energy who never grows up becomes either a bully or a coward. The magician who never grows up becomes either a know-it-all trickster or a dummy. And the lover who never grows up remains either a mama's boy or a dreamer. Now, getting older chronologically is no guarantee of growing up. (laughs) So you can have these male archetypes that go wrong in our culture. King energy can veer off into a man becoming a tyrant or a dictator or he can become a weakling. Somebody who is a yes person to the tyrant. Warrior energy gone wrong leads a man either to be sadistic or masochistic. Magician warrior energy gone wrong can lead a man to be a detached manipulator or a troublemaker who either denies or refuses to take responsibility for his behavior. And lover energy goes wrong either leads a man into one sort of addiction or another or into a person who, oh man, I got the best intentions, but I'm impotent to carry them out. Now, sad thing about all these is that they're powerful. You remember a couple Sundays ago when I showed you iron filings on top of a sheet of paper with a magnet underneath, and the magnet underneath organized the iron filings? These archetypes are working powerfully underneath the surface of our culture, organizing the way things are, and this is what you read about in the paper. This is what you see on TV. These energies gone wrong because the gone right archetypes don't make the news. Although a positive archetype can also influence powerfully, they don't make much news. More about that in a minute. Now, here's something that's so sad or ironic. But the time-honored professions of law, <clears throat> medicine, and ministry are three great arenas for these things to play out in wrong ways. I don't do this anymore, but when I was doing supervision work for either mental health professionals or for clergy, the first question I ask is What's the neurosis that got you in this job? (laughs) Because if you don't know, it will run you. I mean, in the ministry, what could be more arrogant than to think you speak for God? That you're special. I remember when I first got interested in doing union analysis, the analyst I was working with at the time, I asked him if he could name somebody who embodied what Robert Johnson or Carl Jung referred to as integration. And and this guy said, no, I can't do that because these people don't stand out. They're not stars. He said there are a few who do, but the price they have paid for doing that is humongous. And the people he named were Thomas Burton and Thich Nhat Hanh. And I agreed, I'm not willing to pay that price. But I am grateful that we have people in our society who do that. We're going to have one here in January, Jan Phillips. Read her book, still on fire. You'll see the wounding that got her where she is. So just as in a dream, all aspects of this mythic tale can find expression in us and how we are, Parsifal leaves home. He goes in the world to find life's deeper meaning. That's why I'm teaching this class. It's my way to find life's deeper meaning. I mean, I have, I'm have i the one who learns more than any of you because I've got to prepare to be here. And so I'm the one who really benefits with, from this. I'm glad you do too. I hope you do. But you're here seeking that same reason, otherwise you'd be playing golf or doing something else today. We may not be aware consciously of what motivates us, but we're here looking for something to propel us forward. So we go to the castle, we discover the king is sick. Castles represent the ego's old fortress way of being in the world. The king being sick is an indication the kingdom is not flourishing. The only cure for the situation is for a wanderer to come along and ask the king specific questions. Let me stop right here. The thing that marked the life and teaching of Jesus was that he was an itinerant preacher. He was a wandering preacher who did not answer questions He asked questions, the most important of which is, who do you say that I am? And, complementary to that, who is the you that answers that question? And then the question he asked three times, so it must have been important, was to Peter, do you love me? So Parsifal goes to the king, he lives by the rules of his tribal upbringing, he fails to answer the questions, and so he wanders the kingdom. Depending on which version of the grail story you read, five years, 20 years, 30 years, but he he wanders until he's learned enough. Through trials and tribulations, through accomplishments he thought would bring him glory, which didn't, And failures that he thought would define him, which didn't, until he was ready to ask the right question. By the way, again, the word quest comes from the word question. The first question is, "Sire, what ails thee? Where do you hurt? And by asking our egos that question and living it, we develop an understanding and empathy for how we ourselves can so easily become our own worst enemies. We began to develop the capacity and the willingness to uncover our own wounds. And the second question we are to ask is, whom does the grail serve? <clears throat> That is, once I've answered the question about my own identity to some degree, then I can turn my deeper attention to the question of what am I to do? Who are we? What are we to do? And and the answer to these questions is like two sides of one coin. When we serve the specific purposes of our true selves, we serve the community we are part of. When we serve the community we are part of, we serve our true selves. Now, one of the really valuable lessons I got from my work with Robert Johnson is that you have to have a really strong ego to do this. Not an inflated ego, but a strong ego that allows you to be in the world and yet not part of the world at the same time. I had heard that teaching of Jesus all my life, be in the world but not of the world. I had no clue what that meant until I worked with Robert Johnson. And then I began to get it. That we need to learn to be in the various worlds we're in without either gaining or losing our identity because of that world in which we live. Understand? I need to learn to be in the world of my marriage without allowing that role to identify me. To be in the world of my work, to be in the world of my country, to be in the world of my church, whatever it is, without either gaining or losing my identity because of that. Now, one of the things that the Grail story gets us to is that we live in a world of perpetual paradox. We have both arrived and we know we got a long way to go. We've had the glory of the mountaintop experience, and we have to attend a committee meeting tomorrow at noon. (laughs) We're like, Jacob, who got involved in a wrestling match, he won, but he left with a limp. We've been wounded, but the limp doesn't bother us. We are much of the time utterly confused, but we're not confused by our confusion now if that sounds like double talk it is because that's the grail language it's because that's why we talked about non-duality last week so I want to be really clear people who have had or who are open to the grail experience are not perfect not by any stretch of the imagination we fall short we betray others we betray ourselves We fail to live our own truth. We can go contrary to our stated beliefs, our values. We can be hypocritical. But we know that trying to live up to the truths of the grail quest, which I'm labeling as love, honesty, and freedom, is truly what life is about. And having seen that, we can never turn our back on it. So this is what enables us to contradict the values of the world, the world's expectation, and empowers us to be on what Robert called journey into wholeness. I remember when I was in late adolescence, I'd leave the house some weekend night to go meet up my friends, and my mother would say, now remember who you are. What was that about? Here's the cloak I want you to wear when you go into the world. Like Parfus' mother gave him. Or don't do anything to embarrass me. Right? I remember once I was staying with my grandmother, my father's mother, who was, I swear, the the meanest woman God ever made. And... um, I was a teenager and going out somewhere, and and I was saying goodbye, and she said, be sure to wear clean underwear. And I said, what? Why? And she said, well, in case you have an accident. Up until then, I thought dirty underwear was what an accident was, but uh, (laughs) never know. So are you in there? And who's the you who answers that question? Somebody will say to me, I had the strangest dream last night. Well, first of all, all dreams are strange. (laughs) I had the strangest dream last night. Who was it that had the dream? Somebody will say to me, you know, I'm so hard on myself. Who's hard on whom in that sentence? That's an important question to answer. And they never fully or completely answered, who am I, what am I to do, who are we, what are we to do? Because you've got to take into consideration circumstance and what's going on in the world, our own levels of awareness and energy, everything is changing. Now, folks, why is doing this work so important? Because if you don't do it, you're going to die and go to hell. (laughs) Okay? Does that motivate you? (laughs) Living the Parsifal myth, living the Jesus myth, they're very similar as I said, and we're going to get into another myth next week with Holly's help. But doing these mythic stories and seeking to find our places in them is the way that we discover sources of security and guidance and wisdom and power. Now, the first picture I showed you of angry protesters are people seeking those things in very unwise, unuseful ways. Security comes from answering that question, knowing who you are. Most of you are familiar with the Jesus story. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he says, "Eh, nothing on my calendar. I think I'll go on a 40-day retreat. So he goes off on this 40-day retreat, and he meets the tempter, who has these temptations for Jesus. And they all begin exactly the same way. If you are the child of God. So everything that comes along, if we could answer in terms of our true identity would give us a sense of security that's not dependent on anything else. The guidance issue is provided for us by the values by which we live. I got to hear, and several of you did as well, Karen Armstrong, when she was recently here promoting her new book. And I thank you all for giving me that link so I could see it. I understand that's going to be up forever, and for a long time, so you can watch it probably. Google Karn Armstrong in Houston, and you can can see it. And she talked in, in, in her talk about the insight, which is in a lot of her writings, particularly in 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, um, about um, the teaching that gave start to the axial age in which we have been living, but which we seem to be exiting, and now finding another way, we don't know. It's kind of in this turning point, in this time of great revealing or apocalypse that we are in. So we're thrown off balance by that. But Karn says that the great turning point for the globe was in the insight that we should treat other people like we want to be treated. Wouldn't that solve a lot of problems? if we actually did that? Wisdom has to do with asking and being open to hearing wise and useful questions. And power has to do with our willingness to live those values. Okay. One of the ways in which you and I are alike, it's not the only way, I mean we're all headed for the same destination, um, which ought to make us more compassionate toward each other, really. But the way I'm thinking about it is um, that, that you think, just as I do, um, why don't other people see the world like I do? You think that, right? How and why is it that other people haven't come to the same conclusions I have? After carefully considering the facts and looking at everything, it should be clear that we should all live by peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. Right? It just seems clear. Why? So just this past week, Alex Jones endured his second trial, this one to determine yet again the amount he owes the families of victims of the Sandy Hook school shooting that took place ten years ago. Since then, Alex Jones has been putting out the story that that school shooting didn't happen. It was staged. It was put on by actors, and that both the parents and the children were hired actors. That didn't happen. So I went online in an effort to find out how many followers Alex Jones had. And what I discovered instead was how many other lies he has put forth and conspiracy theories he has endorsed. Now, if you have a day that you want to ruin, (laughs) go on Wikipedia and look up the Wikipedia page article about Alex Jones. It will skew your day. But it may be important to know. I, I, I read about him, I hear about him, and other nutcases like him, and, and the nonsense they believe, and I say, how is this possible that somebody actually believes this stuff? And then I thought of a line, um, because I was saying to myself something like, the pure and simple truth is. And then I thought of the line of Oscar Ross that says, <clears throat> the pure and simple truth is rather pure and seldom simple. Now I think that's something to keep in mind as we undertake this journey of our attempt to making sacred the already sacred journey. I want to live with the faith that peace, love, joy, patience, and humility are what unites us on this journey. Not, not our education, not the amount of money we have, not our beliefs, not our political commitments, but those qualities. And I wish that all people were, with awareness, live those same values. We don't live in a world where that's happening. I remember years ago hearing Richard Rohr, one of the first sessions we ever attended at the Center for Action and Contemplation. He quoted the Italian Saint Catherine of Siena saying, it's heaven all the way to heaven. And then Roar added a corollary to that, saying it's hell all the way to hell. So we're on this road trip, making sacred the already sacred journey, and there are both expected and unexpected challenges along the way. We're going to have to stop for gas and food and rest. And we're going to have to listen to those in the back seat who say, are we there yet? There's going to be construction ahead. There are going to be signs warning us of merging traffic. Divided highways. Falling rocks. Bridges out. For me... Though there are all of those difficulties along the journey, it has been and is, and is being one of such joy that I have no desire for it to be over. Let's keep going. Now, I don't want to be blind and dumb to the perils of the journey. They're real. They are real. Right now, there is a lot going on in our country, in our world, in our church that is upsetting and discouraging. And I would be remiss if I did not say that globally and nationally we are in a moment of great peril. Okay? Moments such as these can stir up the worst in human behavior and sociopathic charismatic idiots can and do take advantage of this. Which causes additional and worse divides among us. I don't think we should avoid any of that. I don't think we should deny it. We are facing a serious reckoning in this country. And yet, the majority of people are not like Alex Jones. Alex Jones is not in the audience today. They do have the loudest microphones. I, I take hope in what I see in the people of Ukraine. Their fierceness for freedom and justice. I watched the first episode of the Ken Burns documentary about the U.S. and the Holocaust. Have you seen that? Uh, I understand the other episodes from talking to somebody last night are hard, too. I learned things I didn't know watching those. Like the fact that Hitler got his idea for how to treat the Jews the way we treated Native Americans he thought putting them in cages, as he called it, was a great idea. And when the United States finally got up its courage to confront Germany about their treatment of the Jews, they responded with one word, Mississippi. Now, it's hopeful to me that these truths can come to the front so that we can be more honest in shaping the answers to questions about who are we and what are we to do? Because that's part of who we be. Now, I do think that we who are living in the present have a moral obligation to those who come behind us, what we're gonna leave them. Um, But I see in my grandchildren and their their peers, um, qualities of care and concern an awareness that simply did not mark my generation they're more concerned about the planet and less concerned about differences than we are than their parents are than their adults are I have yet to see a young person who's concerned about what's going on in the Methodist Church they don't care it's not their fight so all around me I see signs of hope and I hope you do as well Doom and gloom can be infectious. That's why it's best not to watch cable TV. Either MSNBC, CNN, or Fox, or their equivalents. Either way. Because love and honesty and freedom can also be infectious. And those are the qualities and values we can live when we leave a gathering like this in our ongoing work to make sacred the already sacred journey. That makes sense? Good. Because I'm done. (laughs) No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and see you here next week. Thank you.